0: Of Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah 31, if you're using the uh, Bible that's under the, the seat there where you are, that's on page 667, Jeremiah 31, uh, beginning in verse 31 and going through uh, verse 34 today as we conclude uh, our, our series on the covenants of the Old Testament uh, and, and how they point us to, lead us to, uh, prepare us for Christmas. Now, obviously, Christmas has uh, been about a week past now, but we're going to finish with this uh, covenant series here this morning. Uh, As you find your way there, I just want to let you know of a couple of things that are uh, coming up, things that are going to be going on in the very near future that you want to make yourselves aware of. Uh, That is, in two weeks from today... um, uh, January fourteenth, we're going to have a time uh, in the afternoon. Uh, you can find this there on the back of your worship guide. There, time in the afternoon, where as a church uh, family, we're just going to get together and we're going to talk about some of the insights that we gained from you all as uh, over the last seven weeks or so, uh, seven or eight weeks, we had been going through uh, that time of mission discovery, reading through some passages of scripture, praying about some things. On January fourteenth, uh, I want to call us together as a church family that afternoon to talk about some of the insights and things that that. Uh, that we were able to glean from what you all had said and things that we uh, as a staff have been feeling God uh, leading us in uh, over the last several months and talking about our mission and vision for the future. And then on January 28th, that Sunday morning in worship, uh, we're going to sort of formally uh, roll out uh, our our mission and vision for First Baptist West Albuquerque for 2018 and beyond. Um, none of this is going to be groundbreaking or brand new in any way. In some ways, if we were as a church doing something brand- Brand new that no church had ever done before, you probably should be worried about that. So, um, so this is not going to be groundbreaking, but it's going to be something that we as a church body can rally around um, and, and, and use to galvanize us as a, as a body as, as we seek to do Great Commission ministry. Uh, as a church together. So put those dates on your calendar, especially if you're a member, plan to be here the afternoon of January 14th as we talk about those things. And then uh, join us again on January 28th, that Sunday morning, as we kind of formally roll out this mission and vision uh, uh, statement and and process that we'll have for the future. I had something else that I was going to announce, but I forgot it. So... um... So there you go. Uh, Next Sunday morning, we'll get back to our our normal normal Sunday morning activities, uh, normal Sunday morning schedule, Bible study at 9 a.m., worship at 1030. uh, And then I think January, the following Wednesday, whatever the Wednesday is, whenever school starts, we'll start back with Praise Factory on Wednesday nights. And so we'll be sure to keep you, for our children, we'll be sure to keep you uh, updated on those things. This was the other thing that I forgot. It's in your worship guide. You probably saw it. There should be another little uh, bifold in there, hopefully, stuck in there, uh, stuffed into your your worship guide this morning. Uh, in, on that is a day by day throughout 2018 five day a week Bible reading plan. And so I would love if you would join me in reading through the Bible next year. Um, this is the plan that I'm going to be using. Uh, it's five days a week. So if you're not a if you're not very good at reading the Bible every day during the week, uh, but you can do five days, you can do this one. And so uh, it, it will take you chronologically through the scriptures. So not not necessarily straight from Genesis through Revelation. There's going to be varied readings throughout the week so that will kind of hopefully keep your interest there readings from the old and the new testament as you go through and it's five days a week so if you miss a day you've got a couple days built in to be able to catch up i hope that you'll join me as uh, as i endeavor to read through the bible this next year uh, uh, going through it according to this plan that we've given and uh, and hope that that will be helpful to you uh, as well Well, as we close out this series on the covenants and Christmas and what they have to do with Christmas, these promises that God makes to his people in the Old Testament and their relation to, their pointing to, their connection to Jesus, we come finally to the last of these five covenants that God makes with his people. And this one here in Jeremiah 31, which is often called the New Covenant. And interestingly enough, uh, God gives the promise of this covenant in Jeremiah 31, but it's a, it's a covenant that will come later. It's not a covenant that is going to uh, uh, be initiated at the moment that God gives it. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Jeremiah, the, 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 the weeping prophet, many have called him, uh, his ministry was an incredibly difficult one. God called Jeremiah to preach, to be a prophet, to speak to his people uh, in the years leading up to their uh, being conquered by the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians and taken into captivity. Uh, Jeremiah's prophecy to the people of Israel and to Judah primarily is not a good one. It's not a happy one. It's actually quite depressing. And if you read through Jeremiah and you don't come out at the end of it feeling a little bit down, you probably weren't paying attention to what's going on. But the reason that Jeremiah's message is so stark, the reason it's so, so dark and so heavy is because the people of Israel, uh, the, the, the Hebrews, have, have uh, largely neglected their relationship with God. They've set it aside. They've worshipped other gods, other idols. We, saw, we, we talked a little bit last week about how after David dies and his son Solomon uh, takes the throne in Israel and uh, after Solomon dies, the kingdom is split in two. And after it's split in two, there's all sorts of problems that begin to happen. Israel had broken the covenant that God had made with them at Sinai, the covenant that is sort of encapsulated in the Ten Commandments. They were worshiping other gods. They were profaning the Sabbath. They were uh, encouraging uh, idol worship and other things as a people. And as a result, they have incurred upon themselves the curses that go along with, that, with breaking that covenant that we read in Deuteronomy 28. You may want to write that down. And this week, go read Deuteronomy 28. And all the things that God says will happen when Israel breaks the covenant. Well, all of the covenant curses that God promised to Israel in Deuteronomy 28, should they break the covenant that God made with them at Sinai in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, all of those things are happening in Jeremiah's day. All of the things that God told Israel would happen for their disobedience are happening. And Jeremiah is, is preaching. His job is to preach to Israel to say, turn around, repent, stop doing these things so that God will relent from, his, from the disaster he's bringing upon you. The people don't repent. They don't change their minds. And God does what he promises he would do. Jeremiah's The book of Jeremiah is, is like I said before, fairly depressing, fairly dark. But in Jeremiah 31, there is a sort of ray of hope uh, towards the end of this prophet's ministry. And that's what we read today in this new covenant that God will make with Israel. As we turn our attention to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, will you stand with me as we read God's word? Jeremiah the prophet, speaking for the Lord, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. There, uh, he's speaking about the covenant at, at Sinai and the Ten Commandments, the covenant that they broke. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each brother say, and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And God bless the reading of his word. You be seated this morning. So here we have it, the new covenant, the final covenant that God gives to his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. This, the new covenant, I would call a covenant of consummation. We saw in the covenant that God makes with Noah a covenant of preservation. The covenant with Abraham is a covenant of blessing. The covenant at Sinai is a covenant of holiness, a God revealing his holy character through the law and calling his people to represent him well in the world. The covenant with David is a covenant of the kingdom. And here... In Jeremiah 31, we have this new covenant, the covenant of consummation. This is a covenant, this is a promise that God's going to make with his people that will bring together and bring to their fullest meaning all of the previous covenants. This is the one that sums it all up. This is a promise that God is making with Israel that he will complete and consummate. He'll he'll bring to completion his plan to restore creation and man to their pre-fallen state. He's going to restore his relationship with them. He's going to to restore them to to his original design. This is a covenant of consummation. and This covenant of consummation has three different parts. The first is this. In verse 33, the second half of verse 33, we have the law of God being written on Israel's hearts. God says, this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. In this new covenant relationship, these days that are coming, the Lord says. Now, these days aren't happening in Jeremiah's own day. They're going to happen in the future. But he says, when that day comes, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write my law on the hearts of Israel. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because the law previously wasn't written on people's hearts, but it was written on tablets of stone, right? Tablets of stone that Moses carried down from Mount Sinai. Tablets of stone that were kept in the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. The law... Which is written on the Ten Commandments, the the Ten Commandments written on those tablets of stone, which points to God's holy character and the requirement for His people to represent God well in the world, will now no longer be written on stone tablets, but it will be written on tablets of flesh. It will be written on the hearts of Israel. Literally, that word heart in the Hebrew means something more like the inner man, the inner person. Maybe maybe you could think of it as your soul. God is going to write his law on the souls of men. He's going to put it in their hearts, not just for something that they can observe written on tablets of stone, but something that they know and are well acquainted with something that they have internalized something that now is not external, but internal it's become a part of them. Holiness will no longer be an external concept applied through law keeping But holiness will now be made personal and internal. It will become a thing that the people of Israel are enabled to do, not just called to do. God will cause his people to be holy from within as he writes his law, his holy law on their hearts. But how will they become holy? How will the people actually be able to do the thing that God is calling them to do? Well, frankly, by God's own spirit. Now, we don't have it here in Jeremiah 31, but we do have a reference in Ezekiel chapter 36, which is just a couple, few pages over from where we are this morning. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36 speaks about the days that are coming and what God is going to do in the context of this new covenant and this new covenant era. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24 and following, the prophet Ezekiel says this, Speaking for the Lord, he says, I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I lost my place. Statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. The prophet Ezekiel says in those days, right, the Lord is going to put his spirit within his people so that they can obey his law. So in Jeremiah, we have this promise from God to put his law on the hearts of the people. And in Ezekiel, God is going to ensure that the people are able to keep the law that he's put in their hearts by giving them also his spirit to dwell in them to help them to obey It's the Spirit of God who will write the law of God on Israel's hearts and it is the Spirit of God who will enable Israel to keep that law in ways that they have not previously. This covenant of consummation has the law of God written on Israel's hearts but it also sees the people of Israel, uh, the people of God in relationship with God. The people of God in relationship with God. In verse 33, the, the last part of that, Uh, We have a concept that I would call mutual possession. That's how I've put it there in your worship guide this morning. Mutual possession. That is to say God will possess his people and God's people will possess him as their God. Verse 33 says uh, towards the end, I will be their God and they shall be my people. This concept of mutual possession does not mean that one will own the other. It doesn't mean that God owns his people and that his people own God, but rather that each belongs to the other. The Lord is God to his people and those who are the recipients of the new covenant, his new covenant people will belong to the Lord in a beautiful relationship of divine care and human obedience and worship. There's relationship and and a mutual possession that that always was was intended. Uh, Maybe a good illustration of the the kind of relationship that God will have with his people is is one of, of marriage, if you will. For when a man and a woman unite together in a covenant relationship of marriage, they belong to each other. The two become one flesh. They forsake others uh, for the sake of one another. God and his relationship with his people will be like a marriage. Not where one owns the other, but where there is a mutual relationship uh, between the two. where, Where each sort of possesses the other, belongs to the other in a meaningful way. The way that God and his role as God will care for his people and God's people as his people will love God and obey him the way that they have been designed. This promise within the new covenant to have a relationship with God to, 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 where the people of God and God himself will be mutually possessed by one another uh, is not unlike anything that we've heard already in this covenant series. We saw in Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8, as God makes his promise to Abraham there uh, to bless him and to bless the nations through him. He says that he, God says, I will be to your offspring as God and they shall be for me a people. I will be their God, the Lord says in Genesis 17. So even all the way back to the promise that God makes to Abraham, he's, he is saying that he is going to, uh, to be in this sort of relationship with his people. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 17, we saw last week. God gives us promise to David of a kingdom that will last forever and of offspring. And God says that that to David's son, to the, the one who sits on the throne, he will be as a father. Uh, to that one and and that one shall be to him as a son. There's relationship implied there. So this relationship, this concept of God being in relationship with his people is not a new thing. It's the thing that God has been doing in, in his promise to Abraham, his his promise, even with the people at Sinai, his promise to David. And now he's going to consummate it fully. He's going to bring it to completion in this new covenant era. So the people of God are in relationship with God. There's a this mutual possession that's happening there. But there's also, as we see in verse 34, a true knowledge of God. Jeremiah 31 verse 34 says, No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, this is not to say that, Israel has never known who God was. They did. They, they, they knew him as, as sons of Abraham who worshipped God, as those who received the law of God at Sinai, as those who were citizens of the kingdom of Israel with David as their king. They knew God. They knew who he was. But they had always been, in some sense, separated from him. The, the people of Israel had always been at a distance from God's holy presence. Go all the way back to Israel at Sinai after they've come out of Egypt. What happens at Mount Sinai? Well, all of the people camp around the base of the mountain while Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to meet with God. God meets with Moses face to face, the text says, but not with the people. The people are separated because of their unholiness, because of their fear of the Lord. In this new covenant era, there, there will not be a fear of the Lord, but, but a... a, a, a I don't even want to say bravery or courage, but a comfortableness to enter into the presence of God, even as he is holy. Be a way to meet with God, to know God without a human mediator in between. That's what Moses was. That's even what David as king was. They're human mediators between God and the people. Ones who heard a word from God, delivered it to the people of Israel, took the cares, the concerns of the people of Israel, delivered them to God through prayer. One who goes between. Well, this new covenant promise of knowledge of God seems to do away with the need for a human mediator. That's good news. That's really good news. That, friends, you, that, that there's a, a promise here that God will be known by his people and not, not through a middleman, but face-to-face, to be known personally. The recipients of the new covenant will be known by God and they will know him personally. They'll not have to be taught about who God is uh, by a human mediator, but will know him personally. Now, let me say this. This doesn't do away with the need for for teachers within the church or among God's people. We always need to be taught the things that are in God's word, but we won't have to be guided by the hand to meet with God personally. There will be true knowledge of God. There will be relationship with him in this new covenant. But the third aspect of the new covenant that, that God is going to make with his people, and, and perhaps the one that is most, uh, most meaningful, most, uh, that causes the most hope, the most joy, is this last piece that we see at the end of verse 34, which is permanent forgiveness of sins. God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Just stop for a second. Just stop for a second and think about all that this entails. That God would not remember the sin of his people anymore. That he would completely forgive their transgressions against him. Think about how much that means. In Genesis 9, after the the flood and, and Noah and his family exit the ark. Uh, there is a, a promise that God will, will no longer destroy the earth through flood. But but prior to that, there there's you can imagine quite a bit of, of fear, maybe even anxiety, in Noah's own hearts, in Noah's own heart and the hearts of his family as they consider what God does with sin, right? He floods the world, destroys the world because of sin. There's fear of destruction, potential destruction because of how sinful people are. If God promises to forgive the sins of his people forever, never to remember them, there's no more fear of destruction. There's no more fear of the, the, the terrible consequences of sin. There's also not, not only is there no longer fear of destruction for sin, but there's no no need for ongoing sacrifices. In the latter part of Exodus and through the book of Leviticus, we have the, the law that God gives to his people. And within the law, we have these instructions for sacrifices that are, be, that are to be made for sins and for guilt of sins. Animal sacrifices, animals who stand in the place of sinful human beings, who give their lives so that the, the humans that they are representing can have their sins forgiven. Leviticus chapters 4 and 5 goes on about the instruction for the kind of sacrifices that would need to happen. But if the God forgives the sins of his people forever, then there's no longer a need for sacrifices. There's no longer a need for this dirty, stinky, bloody business of paying for sins. Because God has forgiven them. That's good news. If you read through the Old Testament, particularly through Leviticus, you begin to see how... Oh, goodness, how uh, unending, how unceasing this process of 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 sacrificing for sins uh, is going on uh, among the people of Israel in the tabernacle and in the temple. It seems day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, animals are being slaughtered for the sins of people. Guys, that's a lot of blood. That's a lot of death because there's a lot of sin among the people of Israel and sin is deadly. But if God forgives the sins of his people, if he forgives their iniquity and and, and remembers their sin no more, then there's no longer a need for sacrifices. Something is paid for their sin. But finally, and maybe best, because there's permanent forgiveness of sin, there is no longer any separation from God. There's no longer separation from God in the new covenant for the new covenant people. Again, we think of Exodus 19 and 20. And even the, the uh, so the people at Sinai have Moses at the top, the people are at the bottom. There's a separation of holy from, from unholy. We think of the worship within the temple in Israel, how there's sort of a, 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 a court that is guarded off by a, by a main wall that, that most of Israel, the Israelite men, can enter into. Uh, but they can't actually go into the temple itself. They can enter the temple complex, but not the temple itself. The temple building itself has a front room that only the priests can enter into. And then there's an, an inner room called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, the, that golden box that held the, the, the stones of the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets. That that contained the Ten Commandments And inside the Holy of Holies Only the high priest could go And only once a year So even in the temple worship And the the, the regular worship of the people of Israel There was a separation from God Because they're not holy And God is holy But in the New Covenant For New Covenant people If God will forgive their sins And remember their iniquity no more There is then the, the promise with it That there's no longer any separation from God And that's good news. You can see why these people of Israel that that Jeremiah is speaking to as they're about to go into exile would find hope in this passage. They're about to be conquered and carried away from their homeland. And here Jeremiah is delivering this promise from God saying there are better days coming. They're going to go through 70 years of exile. They're going to be away from their homeland for a long time. But God is saying better days are coming. Better days are coming. So what's the significance then of this new covenant promise in the Old Testament, right? In Jeremiah. Well, the promise of the new covenant here in Jeremiah 31 demonstrates to Israel and even to us today, God's abundant grace to sinners and his faithfulness to redeem a people for his glory. This promise of a new covenant that God is not done with Israel, even though he's about to send them into exile for all of their sins against him, for all of their unrepentance, says that God is still abundantly gracious to sinful people and that he is faithful to the promises that he has made to his people and faithful to redeem them, to rescue them, to save them and for his glory, for their good, but also for his glory. God could have, if he wanted to, wiped Israel off the face of the earth. He could have allowed them to be taken off into exile and be dealt with however uh, the, the Babylonians would want to deal with them. God never had to return his faithfulness to his people Israel because uh, of their disobedience toward him. He could have wiped, uh, wiped them off the face of the earth. He could have been done with them. He could have started his, his redemptive work with someone else, with anyone else, but he doesn't. He's faithful to an unfaithful people to show that he is gracious and glorious and faithful and good and loving and kind. And the promise of the new covenant sums up all of God's character and his love for his people. What about the connection between the new covenant and and the New Testament and, and Jesus? We're talking about covenants and Christmas. What's the connection between the coming of Jesus and the new covenant? Well, frankly, this that we Coming to the New Testament, see Jesus, this baby born in a manger, uh, living a sinful life, growing and as a man giving his perfect sinless life on the cross for sins and being raised again from the dead. Jesus is the new covenant mediator. He's the new covenant mediator. Now, looking back through the covenants in the Old Testament, we see that God always deals with human parties, right? He dealt with Noah, He dealt with Abraham, He dealt with Moses, He dealt with David. Now he, he speaks uh, through Jeremiah, but there's no covenant mediator mentioned here in Jeremiah 31. But we come to the New Testament and see that it is Jesus who is the new covenant mediator. He's the one who initiates the new covenant, he's the one who sees it through. Jesus, the new covenant mediator, we see in, in all that he does, in his most important work, which is his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that his death makes provision for forgiveness. Jesus, his new covenant mediator, his death makes provision for forgiveness of sins. And that was the most important part of the new covenant, right? That God will permanently forgive the sins of his people. But we know that sacrifices must be made for sins. We see that all through the Old Testament. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So how will forgiveness of sins be made, be purchased for under the new covenant? Well, Jesus is going to give his life to purchase it. His death makes provision for that forgiveness. His blood is the blood that initiates the new covenant. In Luke chapter 22 and in Matthew chapter 26, parallel passages of the same event in Jesus' life, the night before he is, uh, the night that he is arrested and, and the day before he will be uh, uh, taken and publicly executed, he, has a, he shares a final Passover meal with his disciples. And there at the Passover meal, he takes bread and he breaks it. This is a, a, a process, that, a meal that we um, took last Sunday evening together. He takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Then he takes a cup and he says, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. My blood, which is poured out for you, take and drink of it. Jesus says that his blood that he will shed that next day is the blood of the new covenant. There's no accident that Jesus says it. it's not a merely a, a, a coincidence. It's not just by happenstance that he would say that. And it's not just the gospel writers uh, interpreting or, or reinterpreting the events of Jesus life. Jesus says, my blood is the blood of the new covenant. And the new covenant, all of, all of Israel, all of his disciples would have known that, that Jeremiah 31 and the promises that are, that are uh, continue to be spoken about in like Ezekiel 36 that we saw, that was what Jesus was talking about. The disciples knew this. The disciples knew that Jesus was saying that his blood would be the sacrifice that would make way for the forgiveness of sins promised in the new covenant. So Jesus' blood is that which initiates the new covenant. But secondly, his death is a once for all sacrifice for sins. We said before, right? There is no uh, forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, as the author of Hebrews says. But Jesus' death on the cross will be a sacrifice for sins, for the sins of mankind. But not a sacrifice that ever has to be repeated. We look through the Old Testament, we see animals being sacrificed for the sins of people. The lesser part of, of creation being sacrificed for the greater, uh, for, the, for the more important part of creation in God's economy. But in Christ, in Jesus, we have God in flesh. This one who is fully God and fully man and yet without sin who becomes that perfect spotless lamb who dies in the place of sinful man. Now we have in Jesus on the cross, in his death on the cross, not a lesser part of creation dying for the greater, but a greater part, not not even a greater part of creation because Jesus is uncreated from eternity. You have God in flesh giving his life for created man. You have the greater dying for the lesser. And when that happens, there never needs to be a repeat of that sacrifice if you turn in your bibles in the new testament to hebrews chapter nine in hebrews chapter nine the the author of hebrews there kind of walks his reader through the the process of uh, of what the priests would do in the temple once a year on that day yom kippur the day of atonement when the priests in israel would offer sacrifices for the sins of all of the people in Hebrews 9, verse 11 and going through 15, this is what we read. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Speaking of the, the, that holy of holies. But here the, the, the author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus entering not the physical temple holy of holies, but the holy of holies, which is God's own presence in heaven. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, verse 15, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus' blood is the blood that initiates the new covenant, and his death is the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. The author of Hebrews goes on in Hebrews 10, verse 18. He says, Where there is forgiveness of these sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Friends, Jesus on the cross has paid for your sin. He has fulfilled that part of God's new covenant promise to forgive your sin and no longer remember your iniquity. He has made a way for your sins to be forgiven for all of the things that your conscience convicts you of on a daily basis. All the things that you do that you know are morally wrong, Jesus on the cross has paid for those. And to receive forgiveness of sins, all you need to do is trust in his sacrifice to place yourself at his feet At the cross, so as to say, This is my sacrifice, God. Please forgive me. Jesus is the new covenant mediator. His death makes provision for forgiveness. But his work is not complete just with his death, his work is completed in his resurrection. And in his resurrection, we see that Jesus ensures the sending of the Holy Spirit. Jesus ensures the sending of the Holy Spirit. So in his death, he fulfills that part of the new covenant promise for God to forgive the sins of his people, to no longer look upon their transgressions. But in his resurrection, he now makes a way for God to do the other half of the new covenant, right? To to write the law on the hearts of his people and to do so by sending his spirit. Christ's resurrection from the dead is what ensures that. Now, to, to... show that this is so, I would ask you to turn to John chapter 16, the gospel of John chapter 16, verses 7 through 15. John 16, verses 7 through 15. This, Jesus says, as he's preparing his disciples for the fact that he is going to go away. That he's going to die and ultimately be resurrected and not be with them anymore. He says this, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Here he's, he's speaking of his death and resurrection. For if I do not go away, the helper, which is a, another way of referring to the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, that is, if I die and am raised from the dead and ascend into heaven, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine, speaking of the Holy Spirit, and declare it to you. Jesus says, I can't send the Holy Spirit unless I go away. He's speaking of his death, his resurrection, his ascension back into heaven. So Christ's resurrection from the dead, which will lead to his ascension, is what ensures the sending of the Holy Spirit. He's just doing what he told his disciples he would do in John 16. And when the Holy Spirit comes, as we saw in John 16, he's going to do several different things. Now, the Holy Spirit is not this impersonal force. It's not like the the dark side or the light side of the Star Wars universe, that kind of force. The Holy Spirit is, is personal. The Holy Spirit is a person of God. We believe that God exists as one God in three persons. That's mysterious. We won't ever understand it. There's not a single person in here that is one per, that, that is one individual, one uh, one person that exists in sort of three different ways. That that doesn't happen. So it's a thing that that for which there's no uh, uh, earthly example or or good comparison. But that's what we believe. There's one God in three persons: Father, Son, and Spirit. And this third person of God, the Holy Spirit, is the one is who The person of God that Jesus is sending To live in the hearts of believers And when he comes he's going to convict People of sin That's what we read in John chapter 16 That's part of the Holy Spirit's job To convict us of sin So Christian when you've come to faith In Jesus Christ trusting him as Savior And Lord we believe Understand from scripture that the Holy Spirit dwells In us makes his home In our hearts even as Ezekiel Promised that that God would do To put his spirit within us and as we live through this life as Christians, and we sin, we uh, disobey God, we do things that are immoral or not right or unkind or wicked, we have this conviction. We have this, uh, not guilt, but, but an understanding that, boy, what I just did there was wrong. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does. He shows us what what is right, what is wrong, how to walk in the gospel, how to live like Christ, how to follow Jesus faithfully. And so that tension that we have between right and wrong as believers is a result of the Holy Spirit in us who convicts us of sin, which is a part of the promise of the new covenant. That's good news. Friend, if you're convicted of sin today, that's a good thing. And the right way to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit is to repent, to turn from it, to stop sinning and seek to please God. The Holy Spirit not only convicts us of sin, but also, as we said before, dwells within our hearts and in dwelling in our hearts, raises us from the dead. That's good news. Somebody say amen. Okay, someone's awake. That's good. Or at least you take direction. Well, I don't know. The Holy Spirit that Jesus sends after he is raised from the dead, ascends into heaven, dwells in the hearts of believers and is the, the uh, person who raises us from the dead. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says this, Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. He says, you, speaking to the church, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, that is through his Spirit, the Spirit of Christ living in us, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. I had an uncle who died yesterday. Um, that, he'd been ill for a while just um, and, and kind of uh, things progressed quickly and passed away Others of you have had people that you know, close to you, die uh, Over the, the course of this last year Death is sad Death should be sad in some way for most of us There's a bitterness associated with death as the believer, we, we understand the bitterness associated with death is, is, is that it, it shows that sin is still kind of working in the world. Right? Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Right? That, what we earn for our rebellion against God is physical, bodily death. It stings, it hurts, it's sad. But for the one who knows Christ... And for the one who has the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, living in them, there is hope. Whether there's sadness, there's bitterness and death, there's hope of resurrection. Why? Because that Spirit is the Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And if that Spirit lives in you, Christian, if that Spirit lives in you, friend, you have the hope of also being raised from the dead. And every person that you know that has died while believing in Christ, they will also be raised from the dead to live forever with God in his presence. This new covenant promise of of God writing his law on our hearts and putting his spirit within us to help us to obey his law doesn't doesn't just, just bring us hope for this life, but it brings us hope for the next. Friend, if when you think about death, you have no hope, beyond this life, if when you think about death, all you see is blackness and darkness and emptiness, because you don't know the God of the universe who created you to know him and love him, because you've not trusted in Jesus and the Holy Spirit does not live within you, let me plead with you this morning to look into the void of what lies beyond your life on this earth and be moved to want something more. Be moved to want not just a life for for 60, 70, 80 years on this earth, but a life that lasts forever in the presence of the God who created you. Receive eternal life, the eternal life that, that Paul is saying the Holy Spirit will give to you by trusting in Jesus as your Lord today, by trusting in him as the initiator and the mediator of a new covenant, the one who provides eternal salvation from your souls. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts, our lives as believers and raises us from the dead to live for eternity with God. But also the Holy Spirit is the one who lives in us, who enables us to please God, to live lives that are pleasing to him, to keep the law that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament, the, not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. To to be holy even as God is holy. Paul writes again to the church in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 5 verses 22 and 23. There he speaks about the kind of life that's lived in the spirit. With the Holy Spirit living in us. The kind of life that he works out in us. The kind of fruit that we ought to see. Paul says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. There's no law, there's no rule against love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. No one's ever going to fault you for those things. God will never fault you for those things. He says in verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions And desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. When God puts His Holy Spirit in your heart, Christian, as you trusted in Christ, He gives you, He writes on your heart the law, His law, His holiness, and He gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit to enable you to be holy, even as God is holy. Now, there are some people in some traditions, church traditions, that believe we can attain perfect holiness in this life uh, even before we die. I'm not among them. I think we will always struggle with sin. We will always struggle with perfect holiness. But we have the Holy Spirit in us bringing about the kind of fruit in our lives that Paul talks about here in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, right, there is no law. So that means the law of God, which is written on our hearts, Christian, is a law of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of that done in submission to God, in love for who he is, displaying his holy character in the world. These things that Paul talks about in Galatians 5, these things, the fruit of the Spirit, is not something that we can do in our own strength. It's not something that can be done in our own efforts or in our own abilities. That's why it's the fruit of the Spirit. Not a sort of uh, amorphous spiritual truth or, or, or spiritual fruit, excuse me, but a specific kind of fruit associated with a specific kind of Spirit. So, friend, you can't live a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control apart from the Holy Spirit living in you. And you can't have the Holy Spirit living in you unless you're trusting Jesus, new covenant mediator, who died for your sins and was raised from the dead, that he might give the Holy Spirit to you. Jesus, the new covenant mediator whose death makes provision for forgiveness, whose resurrection ensures the sending of the Holy Spirit, is the very center. He's the very focus, not just of the new covenant, but of all of the covenants that we see in the Old Testament. He's the center of all of those covenants, uh, and we've seen that over the last four weeks, but we see it especially this week in this covenant of consummation, where all of God's promises of salvation, all of God's promises of, of provision and of holiness and, and of kingdom and a righteous king who sits on his throne, all of these things are consummated in the new covenant, and the new covenant is initiated and mediated by Jesus. Jesus is the hero, not just of the covenants. He's the hero of all of Scripture. Jesus is the center and the focus. He is the the one king to whom we look, who has met all of our greatest needs. The significance of Jesus, his new covenant mediator, is this, that Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, God with skin on, brings the fullness of God's plan of salvation from sin to bear on all humanity. Jesus makes that possible. His death pays for sins, And his resurrection seals eternal life. This is why the new covenant matters. And this is why Jesus matters in relation to the new covenant. There is no realization of the new covenant promises of Jeremiah 31. If God does not take on flesh in a baby named Jesus born in a manger 2,000 years ago. Grow and, and as he lives and grows into a man. Lives a life without sin. Dies on the cross. And is raised from the dead. None of the new covenant promises are possible apart from God doing that in Christ. So friend, as we end this year and end this Christmas season and look forward to the new year. I encourage you, find in Jesus. Whether you're a Christian today or whether you don't know Jesus yet. Find in Jesus the joy of forgiveness of sins and the hope of living a life pleasing to God you want to know the father be in relationship with him if you want your sins forgiven you want the kind of life that god promises trust jesus know jesus lay your life at the feet of jesus and say i'm all yours i know i'm a sinner i don't like my sin I don't want to sin anymore. I know that I'm separated from God because of it. Jesus, because of your death and your resurrection, I'm I'm placing my life in your hands and trusting what you have done for me to save me from my sins. Yeah. Friends, that's what it means to be saved. Not just to not to go to church more weeks than you don't, not to give money for a tithe. Being saved doesn't it doesn't happen because you read your Bible every day. Being a new covenant person, being a recipient of God's new covenant promises happens when you trust and submit your life to Jesus. The initiator, the perfecter, the purchaser of these new covenant promises. There's joy in that and there's hope in that. Friends, find joy, find hope of living a life pleasing to God by knowing Jesus today. And Whether you've been a Christian for, for 60 years or for six minutes... Find that joy and that hope in Jesus. The world is going to tell you to look to all sorts of different places to find those things. Look to money, look to relationships, look to possessions, to look to advancing in the corporate ladder, to find joy, to find hope. The world is going to hold out all sorts of things in front of you to place your hope in. A prosperous 401k and a nice retirement on a boat somewhere. I'm saying, friends, look forward to more meaningful things. There is greater joy. There's greater hope than the things that this world can give. And they're found in knowing Jesus. Yeah. Christian, there, there are evangelistic, there are gospel sharing uh, 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 encouragements here for us today. This impacts our evangelism. Knowing that we have joy and hope in Christ impacts how we speak to other people about our relationship with Jesus. It's not just that I trusted in Jesus and yeah, now my life is going great. No, our, our testimony, our, our story of knowing and coming to know Christ as we share with others who don't know Jesus, ought to be something like this: uh, There is real joy in my life, irrespective of all the terrible things that might be going on. Even though my family's sick and my house is falling apart, and all this. I still have joy. I still have hope in my life because my greatest need, which is forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God, has been met in Jesus. God does not take on flesh in Jesus born in a manger, died on a cross and was raised from the dead to give you your best life now. He didn't do that. In fact, we have promises from all over scripture that that in fact, as a believer, your worst life might be now. But we endure and we have joy and hope to help us in enduring maybe what might be our worst life because there's a better life coming on the other side of death. On the other side of the resurrection as the holy spirit of god that he gives to us through jesus death and resurrection and our trust in him will raise us from the dead even as he did christ friends as you share jesus with others in this next year and you share the hope of the gospel with others in this next year point them to jesus jesus the person god in flesh who gave his life for their sins don't point them to don't don't tell them that their life will get better as soon as they trust jesus because it might not It might bring more conflict into their family relationships for those who don't like Jesus and are mad that they have now trusted him. It might bring troubles at work trusting Jesus. It might bring financial hardship if somebody loses their job for becoming a Christian. Don't promise people their best life now for trusting Jesus. Promise people, the, the promise of the Holy Spirit who will raise their dead souls to life now and their dead bodies to life in the resurrection as they trust in Jesus. A promise, that a new covenant promise that is far better than anything that this world can give to us. Let's pray.